Hey, welcome back to Veterans Radio. Our guest today is Brian Mark Rigg. He's written a new book called Flamethrower, which I found really fascinating to me. It's about the uh, Iwo Jima Medal of Honor recipient and Marine Woody Williams and his controversial award and uh, Japan's Holocaust and the Pacific War. Uh, Brian, welcome to Veterans Radio. Hey, Dale. Thanks so much for having me. I think this is a, this is a great book for me. I found it from a personal standpoint. I learned so much more about, you know, what was going on in the Pacific uh, during World War II. As I mentioned in our earlier conversation, my dad had been in the Coast Guard and had been involved, in, as I learned, in Saipan, Iwo Jima, and Okinawa. And uh, I didn't know anything about any of these things. So I appreciate all the effort that you put through uh, writing this book. And it's this is a major, major contribution i think to the history of the war in the pacific oh thank you Dell. i appreciate it as a culmination of 25 years of reading and five years of intense research so i'm glad to hear you know a person of your background you know with your your father as well as your service to our nation that you appreciated it and you found it educational i did i did and i need to tell everybody a little bit more about brian he is a marine there are no former marines i know that <laughs> he is a Marine. He's also a graduate of Yale University. He's got a Ph.D. from Cambridge. Um, he's, he's done all kinds of things, written a number of books about uh, World War II and the, and the, uh, the life of uh, Jews in Germany. And I thought those are rather interesting. I'm anxious to read those books as well. But what made you decide to write this story about Woody Williams? Well, back in 2015... Uh, I had the opportunity to go to the 70th, commemor 70th commemoration of the Battle of Iwo Jima. And there was over 400 people that signed up, and over 30 of them were veterans. And so I decided to take my then 12-year-old son uh, to uh, go to this amazing battlefield with actual veterans to teach him about, you know, freedom is not free, let's honor these men. As a Marine, I wanted to go touch Mecca, if you will. It's one of the most holy sites, if you will, for Marine Corps history. Iwo Jima, the famous flag raising on Mount Suribachi, of course, is well known to many people. So I was really going there as a tourist and as a veteran. I wasn't really going there as a historian. But I wanted to teach my son uh, the craft of interviewing uh, veterans, learning their stories, thanking them for their service. I have interviewed um, over, you know, 500 men of Jewish descent who served in the Nazi military during World War II, and that helped support my first book, my PhD, and my first book, Hitler's Jewish Soldiers. So I've been interviewing veterans uh, on a regular basis since uh, 91 and 92, but I really hadn't interviewed an awful lot of American veterans. And so it was a pleasure uh, for me to interview a lot of Marines, teach my son how to interview veterans and have him be part of that. And while I was on this trip in 2015, I met Woody Williams, a Medal of Honor recipient from World War II. And I also met a guy by the name of Lefty Lee, who had actually served with Woody uh, during this time and was giving testimony about what he witnessed Woody do. And then, of course, Woody was talking about his exploits on Guam as well as Iwo Jima. And when I found out that he had not written up his story in an autobiography, and nobody had actually studied him and written his biography uh, themselves. I was like, well, hey, I'm a Marine. I'm a historian. Uh, it looks like this might be an interesting uh, 
biography to explore and to use Woody's life to explore the larger issues of amphibious warfare, the Pacific War, the Japanese enemy, why we dropped the bombs, and uh, you know, analyze this part of World War II, which I had studied an awful lot about. Uh, I was blessed to do um, seminars and independent studies with James Crowley and Paul Kennedy at Yale University. And I enjoyed studying the Pacific War, but I never really written about it. My, my expertise up to this point was Nazi Germany, uh, the Third Reich, Hitler, and the Holocaust. So I dove into it, you know, feet first, if you will, you know, full on in 2015 and did a five-year study using research I had done for 20 years uh, about World War II. I'd taken a lot of courses on the Pacific War, had studied a lot about uh, Japan and Hirohito. And so that's how it began. And that was a little bit of the um, uh, history of me having the foundation uh, to use to write this story up. Okay, because the, 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 the book kind of goes back and forth between um, Woody, his story, and also the uh, you know Imperial Army of Japan and the Navy and Hirohito and Kurobashi and, and, and so forth. And again, this is a history lesson for all of you history buffs out there. If you want to know what happened in the Pacific, this is the book to, to, to look at because you're going to find out so many more things. And, you know, obviously we, didn't, we never learned these things in school. And I, I think that that's what's important. You know, it, you know the, the, the statement, of course, is that, you know, if you don't know our history, we're bound to repeat it. And uh, this is things that we can see are occurring in, uh, today even. And so we have to be aware of these things. I think it's, it's, it's great, too, also that you took your son over there to um, just experience it, I think. I've, I've talked to a couple of people that have been to Iwo Jima, just like the people that have been to Normandy. And you know, I'm, luck, I'm fortunate enough I could bring out my little displays of sand that people have brought back for me, which is great. Um, so Woody's story is, is really interesting. I mean, he is kind of the typical... World War II drafty type of person that, you know, went into the Marines. Can, can you give us a little background on, on Woody Williams? Yeah, so Woody Williams was um, a very simple person from, from West Virginia. Uh, you know, he's a product of the Great Depression. Uh, he was really not destined for uh, anything great in many respects when you look at his early uh, years. You know, he dropped out of high school in ninth grade. Uh, he was kind of taken up with the wrong crowd. Uh, seems like he was, you know, drinking and corralling around with some not not really, uh, uh, you know, savory, I mean, unsavory characters. Uh, he went into the CCC, though, the, the Civilian Conservation Corps, uh, run by General MacArthur, and he was trying to put his life together when the war broke out. Uh, he eventually left that, went back home as a taxi driver, and from the evidence that I've seen, he didn't really, you know, volunteer or want to go serve. He was just kind of staying in the wings until he was drafted. And when he was drafted, he decided to go in the Marine Corps. I guess they gave him that option at that time. And, uh, you know, he, he really took to the culture. He was very proud of becoming a Marine. And like you were mentioning, there's no former Marines. You know, it's the only service out of the, the four major services that it's not something you join. It's something that you become. 
right. you know, it's a transformation of, uh, of your identity. And I really go into this, and this is something the Marine Corps has done for generations. And so Woody really bought into that, and that really helped his self-esteem. And then he became a demolition uh, expert. And so he started learning how to deal with TNT and grenades and all types of explosives, Bangalore, you know, mines, and then, of course, the flamethrower. And, uh, and that's why uh, he used the day that uh, he did the acts he did to get the, the Medal of Honor. So, yeah, he's just a very simple guy from West Virginia and was thrust into two of the major battles of the Pacific War, a lesser known battle, uh, Guam. Many people don't know that not only did we fight, fight on Guam, but Guam was actually American territory at this right. time. And that the Japanese were persecuting our nationals on this island and actually set up seven concentration camps. It's like a miniature holocaust on American soil. Nobody knows about this. So I write an awful lot about this and how Woody was part of the invasion force that liberated that island, how he learned how to fight. And then I uh, go into depth about what we can actually prove what Woody did on Iwo Jima and then how he suddenly was thrust into fame you know, at the end of the war, being one of 82 Marines out of 669,100 Marines to get the Medal of Honor. And so that, in short, is kind of Woody's life. And I use his life like, like uh, um, I've mentioned before, and as you're, you're, you're talking about how I bounce between his life and then the larger historical issues, using his life to tell you about what's going on operationally and tactically and then bouncing up to the strategic and political level to give people a feel for why Woody was even at Guam and Iwo Jima and what we were doing there. Right, and and that's what I found, uh, again, so very interesting about the, um, you know, without getting into all the details and the gory details, let's put it this way, of Japanese, Japanese occupation of, you know, China and so forth, what was their goal? I mean, what what was why was Japan so eager to expand their empire? Do you think? Yeah, well, you know, um, that that's one one um, uh, question that I I do an awful uh, I, I work with in my book, and I think I I answer it um, you know throughout the the pages. And thank you for the question. You know, a lot of people have asked, you know, what 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 was Japan doing during during this time period? And we're still struggling with uh, how the military and the, the the political. Sorry about that. Let me get that on this uh, mute. And how how the political and and the military leaders at this time got things so wrong with how they were doing things internationally. But to make a a very long history short. Japan, when it went through its transformation with the Meiji you know, Restoration in the late 1860s, there, and when they were forced in the 1850s with you know, perish black ships to open up to the, the Western world, they were suddenly thrown into uh, the, the modern world, if you will, in the late 1800s. And they're seeing all these nations building out empires, Britain, Germany, France, America, a manifest destiny, if you will. And they're like, man, we, we, we've missed the boat. We, we should have been doing this for Asia, just like you know, Germany and, and France and uh, England are doing all throughout uh, India and Africa and throughout the Pacific as well. We got to get in the game. And so they slowly but surely started taking over island like the Okinawa, 
Uh, and then, you know, slowly but surely in the 20th century, they started taking over land in, uh, first of all, Taiwan in the first Sino-Japanese War, 1894 and 1895. Then they have a remarkable victory over Russia in 1904 and 1905. And that gets them uh, parts of Manchuria, as well as all of Korea. They basically annex Korea in, in 1910. And they, they brutalize the, the country. They rape the women. They, any, any type of protest, they're killing people left and right. They're exporting a lot of the uh, Koreans all throughout their empire to be economic slaves. And so they're giving us uh, an understanding of what they want to do, you know, during this time period is they're now starting to build out their empire, taking the example of what Western powers were doing. Now getting to uh, uh, World War II, you know, they are, they had an incredibly fascist, xenophobic uh, nation that was built on dictatorship, if you will, and totalitarian, uh, you know, beliefs and concepts much longer than Mussolini's fascist Italy or, you know, Hitler's uh, Nazi Germany, because it was a fascist state as soon as the Meiji Constitution was implemented in the late 1860s and, and early uh, 1870s. And so you had 70 years, really, by the time of World War II, you know, two and a half generations that were raised with this totalitarian belief that they were the best that humanity had to offer, that they were sanctioned by God to rule everybody, that anybody who was not Japanese was, was inferior, and they were still the only nation in uh, World War II that was not only ruled by a dictator, but was still ruled by a god right. in human form, Hirohito. He was infallible. And so this fascist state had religious sanction uh, to it, that their gods blessed this, uh, this nation to go out and rule everybody else. So by the time you know Hirohito came on the scene in, in uh, 1925, 1926, when he became the uh, uh, the new emperor uh, of Japan, uh, the third in succession from the Meiji Constitution, his grandfather, father, and then he, uh, he was handed the reins of a perfectly oiled fascist state that would do his bidding. And he wanted more land and more power because Japan was very uh, poor in oil and raw materials, steel, nickel, aluminum, and so on, uh, to build out their empire. And so they were looking at their Lebensraum, if you will, to use a German term, you know, Lebensraum for Germany. They wanted to take all over Russia and have that as their breadbasket for their food, as well as getting down to Baku and, you know, and, and, uh, uh, you know, take over Georgia to get all the oil uh, down there uh, and have their supplies to support their war machine and their nation from Russia. That was what Germany was doing in the Lebensraum. Japan was looking at China as their Lebensraum to get their natural resources and to build out their empire. So they slowly but surely started making inroads in 31 uh, into Manchuria, 37. They took over a large swath of China, basically half of China. Uh, and they continued on making inroads uh, all throughout Asia. And this was worrying America at this time. 
And so that's why they were doing this at this time. They wanted to have power. They wanted to, uh, to rule the world, if you will. And they wanted to get away from being dependent on European powers for natural resources. But they were still, even though they took over a lot of China throughout the 30s, they still were very vulnerable when it came to oil and gas. Right. And so the only place that really could provide their empire with the oil and gas that they needed, if America and the European powers uh, would not supply it to them, was Indonesia. And that was controlled by the Dutch. So one of the reasons why they attacked us at Pearl Harbor was to kick us out uh, of that region so, we, so they could take over Indonesia and control that oil and, and, and gas. So these are some of the larger themes of why Japan was doing what it was doing uh, throughout the 20s, 30s, and then early 40s, and um, you know they and 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 why they were 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 so reckless. Uh, because what's interesting is why they were going to Indonesia by by getting that oil and the gas there. That that did help their their military, but making the enemy of the the British Empire. Uh, and making an enemy of the United States, they brought two of the most incredible powers known to, to mankind, if you will, against them. And when you look at the output that America could do with the, the, the Commonwealth of Nations under uh, you know, Britain, there was no way that they could fight us. Mm -hmm. uh, they had, they, you know, one, one example I love to give here as far as the industrial output that Japan, even with the resources of Indonesia, and with the raw uh, materials coming from Manchuria, um, what, what they ultimately did versus what we could do, there was just no way they could compete. And this is one example I give. At the beginning of the war, Japan had 11 aircraft carriers. By the end of the war, they had 16. We, at the beginning of the war, had 10. By the end of the war, we had 150. Yeah. You know, so it's just, you know, they 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 created a situation when they did knock us out of the, the Pacific realm for about six months and took over large swaths of Asia and the Pacific. Um, they created a situation they couldn't hold on to as a Pyrrhic victory, if, if, if you will. But it was with the drive of we got to be independent. We got to be independent. And that drive of being independent economically and militarily led them to make too many enemies in the world that were largely uh, you know, superior in so many areas, uh, especially in the military realm. So that's a long-winded <laughs> answer to that question, uh, Dale. Sorry, I, you know, I could talk uh, for semesters long about this, obviously, so, but thank you for the question. No, I think, that, I think that's really important for all of us to understand, because I mean, sometimes you, you know, it, when we're learning about it in school, it's 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 kind of passed over, you know, because, you know, when I went to school, World War II had only been over for 15 years, let's say. And so, you know, we barely got to it. And it's like the generations of today, you know, they barely get to Vietnam or they barely get to the war on terror. And so, you know, we're, we're prone to make these assumptions that are, you know, totally incorrect. Let's put it that way. So we're talking right now with Brian Mark Rigg. He's the author of Flamethrower. Uh, it's basically about the war in the Pacific and one particular Medal of Honor recipient, uh, Woody Williams. But he also talks a lot about uh, the commander of uh, Iwo Jima, who is uh, General 
uh, Kuribashi, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kuribayashi. Kuribayashi. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I just thought that was an, an interesting story because this guy had a very checkered past um, as far as, you know, his humanitarian efforts, let's put that mildly. And now he's given the last the last opportunity to protect the homeland. Talk about why Iwo Jima was so important to the Japanese. I mean, they're starting to lose these islands and some of these other battles already. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, in the, the long march across the Pacific, you know, we, we take over Guadalcanal, we take over Tarawa, you know, we take over the Marianas, which is Guam, Tinanen, and Saipan, and these are important because that's where the atomic bomb flew from, Tinanen, you know, later. And that's where we set up basically our, our huge air bases to just pummel uh, Japan down into, uh, you know, rubble and dust. Uh, Okinawa was the first a piece of Japanese real estate that we took over. So for the Japanese, this was a, uh, uh, you know, a huge uh, piece of, of pride, if you will, that they had that we can't let Japanese soil, you know, be taken over. Uh, by an enemy of force. This has never happened in our, you know, 2,000 plus years of glorious history. You know, the Mongols tried to invade us, and of course they got, you know, pushed back. Uh, and uh, you know, nobody's been able to take over Japanese land. So that's one reason why it was kind of like the Japanese Alamo, if you will, it was the last, you know, fortress before mainland Japan was going to be taken over. Although we did take over a large section of Japanese land right after that, Okinawa. Uh, but, you know, they, they felt with Kuribayashi's vision, uh, the, the, the Japanese leaders felt that if they made the cost too uh, high for America there, that that might give American leaders um, pause before they would invade the mainland, you know, and suffer even more egregious casualties. The Japanese were quite often, it, it's very interesting, I mean, very intelligent people. Uh, a lot of interesting philosophy coming out of there, like Musashi with the five rings, the tea ceremony that they have, uh, a lot of the samurai culture, you know, and how they, they raised warriors, um, their, their hygiene, uh, their, their art. I mean, very sophisticated people, obviously. But then they, the levels of irrationality that they would go to uh, during World War II, thinking that a Japanese spirit of w- warriorhood would, would give them victory over, you know, all the enemies that they had, uh, or that by fighting so bravely at uh, Iwo Jima, uh, that really hadn't been that dramatically different from the other islands, was going to finally convince America that, oh man, this is just too much for us. You know, after suffering hundreds of thousands of deaths and so on and, and occupying Germany, you know, that suddenly we're going to say, well, we're not going to do that with Japan. No, we had the political will, we had the military capability, and we had the bravery uh, to, to do this. So it was really unrealistic that Kuribayashi and Tojo and others who uh, sent him there uh, and he himself felt like this might convince America finally to sue for peace because it was so brutal. Now, it was indeed a very brutal battle. Uh, it, as, at ma- as far as major battles are concerned during the Pacific War, it's the only battle that America suffered more casualties uh, than they inflicted on the Japanese. 
the only, only other place was a small island outside of Peleliu called Anguar, which actually my uncle, Frank Rigg, fought at. And there the commander used similar tactics that Curry Bayashi did on Iwo Jima, delaying tactics to very good uh, withdrawals to new defensive lines and so on that just wore us down. Uh, but, uh, you know, it didn't deter us uh, from wanting to, um, you know, continue on and occupy uh, Japan and, and, and enforce the Potsdam Declaration, unconditional uh, surrender. Now, Kuribayashi was very unique in the sense that he broke with a lot of the traditional uh, views of how you defend islands that uh, a lot of his predecessors uh, used. They wanted to defend at the beach. They liked using massive bonsai charges when they got their backs up against the wall, if you will, and they wanted to have glorious deaths and so on. But it was a very inefficient way of fighting. So Kuribayashi, out of his 20,000-man garrison, he brought in uh, 2,000 men that were engineers, combat engineers, and he built out a fortress like none other, really, in the history of, of military history. It was an eight-square-mile uh, uh, Iwo Jima was, and he had 11 miles of tunnels in that eight square miles. And he basically suffered very few casualties uh, in the initial bombardment because all the men were in the island. And he didn't use bonsai charges. He didn't defend at the beach. And he, you know, basically used indirect fire. He was brilliant at that, meaning that you didn't have to have line of sight, but he had actually measured out and, you know, knew the trajectories of his mortars, his spigot, you know, mortars, huge mortar, a uh, 600-pound mortar that he used, you know, and artillery and so on, lobbing them in a rainbow fashion from hidden positions onto the beach causing a lot of slaughter to, to our Marines. And this was very unique compared to what a lot of other Japanese leaders had, had done. And he broke with a lot of the orders that was given to him by his higher command, like Tojo. Tojo actually told him, go out like at, uh, the Japanese did at Attu on the Alaskan island, which is like in a blaze of glory with a bonsai charge to like inflict fear into the Americans. Uh, it never, I mean, it didn't inflict fear in us, but we refused to give up. And of course, we defeated those uh, attacks left and right all throughout the Pacific. So Kuribayashi knew they were inefficient, and he wore us down in what we thought was going to be like a five day uh, battle turned into a 36 day slugfest. Right. And it did give us pause. It did, you know, the unintended consequences of Kuribayashi's strategy of wearing us down, create, you know, creating a lot more death than what we expected was it did convince our leaders like, man, we don't want to invade Japan if we don't have to. Uh, because if 20,000 men can kill 7,000 Marines and then wound an additional 19,000 of us, and almost all 20,000 of these guys died of the last man, how much more so will that be on mainland uh, Japan where we have to attack 4.5 million regular soldiers supported by 20 million militia right so that Iwo Jima did convince us even more so that you know if we have these super weapons like the atomic bombs that we can drop on them and this hopefully will get them to surrender this is a lot better option than than trying to invade after what we experienced on Iwo Jima and then later on Okinawa a few months you know after uh, Iwo Jima then it started so uh, that's something interesting about Iwo Jima and Kuribayashi's strategy getting to Kuribayashi's biography like you were saying you know, Clint Eastwood's movies from 2006 
and Letters from Iwo Jima and Flags of Our Fathers, portray Kuribayashi as a very honorable and, and good uh, general. Uh, and, you know, very martial, very samurai-like, had spent time in America, had a lot of American friends. And you, you don't come away at all thinking that this guy uh, was immoral and unethical. Well, what I found when I did research on him is that this guy was a mass murdering rapist thug. And he was just typical of every Japanese general during mm -hmm. this time period. Japan was absolutely a horrible nation. And they still are in many respects in the sense that they have not one monument to the 30 million victims they, they uh, you know, killed during World War II in their country. Whereas if you look at Germany, they have thousands of monuments and their archives are open and they have, you know, monuments everywhere. Japan, not at all. Uh, yet they created one of the most worst regimes uh, when it comes to mass murder uh, and rape and crimes against humanity that uh, world history has ever seen. And Curry Bayashi was part of that. He was the second in command of the 23rd Army that took over Hong Kong right after Pearl Harbor was attacked, and his uh, legions within a few weeks killed 50,000 uh, civilians and raped 10,000 women uh, minimally. And he was just, you know, that was just one action that he was part of, of many actions that led up to eventually him going to Okinawa, I mean Iwo Jima. Iwo Jima, we might have had a lot more atrocities there, but it was a Japanese island, which is Japanese soldiers. There was no civilians there. You know, if he had been defending Nanking or Canton or like what we saw with Manila, with Yamashita, uh, and James Scott wrote a wonderful book recently called Rampage about this, you know, we would have seen a lot of death and, and destruction just like uh, he did earlier. So, you know, one of the controversies I had is I was interviewing Curry Bayashi's grandson, who's a very well-known politician. His name is Honorable, uh, the Honorable Shindo. And when he found out I was documenting that his grandfather was a criminal, he did a smear campaign against me and tried to prevent me from documenting this. He was very childish in many respects and um, uh, was not very honorable with, with the truth, although he gave me a lot of good information during my, my interview. So that was a, one conflict I had getting this book out, which was very shocking to me that instead of finding a person that is embracing democratic you know, values, I mean, he was in... Shinzo Abe's cabinet and has been a long-standing, uh, very well-known politician. Instead of him embracing the past, like a lot of German children and grandchildren of, you know, Nazis being honorable about their past and embracing it and, and acknowledging what their ancestors did was wrong, he did the exact opposite. So, you know, my book has a lot of political commentary also of how we preserve memory, how we write history. And what is a honorable thing to do with the crimes of the past is to document them and deal with the facts. Germany's done a very good job of doing that. I found Japan has been absolutely disgraceful since World War II of doing that. Okay, we're going to uh, take a real quick break here. And when we come back, we're talking with Brian Mark Rigg, and he's the author of a book entitled Flamethrower, uh, the Emo Jima Medal of Honor recipient of uh, U.S. Marine Woody Williams, and the... Uh, how he received the award and, and the whole process that it went through, which I thought was rather interesting. And uh, what happens next? <laughs> no, right there. So don't go away. We'll be right back. You're listening to Veterans Radio. One, two, three, four, five. Right here. Yeah, we're, we're back. 
Oh, I, I, I'm sorry, Daddy. I tell you, when you ask me a question, there's so much to say. I hope I'm not being too long-winded. No, 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 no. I think that's fine. That's a half a program right there. Um, okay. Anyway, we're back here on, on Veterans Radio with Brian Mark Rigg. He's the author of a, a really great book, I think, called Flamethrower. Uh, it's about the Medal of Honor recipient, Woody, Woody Williams, and also gives us a history lesson of what was going on in the Pacific at the time with Japan and their... Um, you know, fascist regime at the time and the, the island hopping that the American military had to do uh, to get closer and closer to Japan so that they, the B-29s and B-24s and so forth were able to uh, bomb Japan and hopefully into, you know, into surrendering, which eventually, obviously, they did when they dropped the two atomic bombs on there. I wanted to go back, Mark, uh, I mean, Brian, with um, with Woody Williams now and you know, we know that he's on uh, Iwo Jima. We know that he has. I, I was watching a number of uh, YouTube interviews with him, and he's. You mentioned in the book that his story changes over over time, and I, I was thinking of Medal of Honor recipients that I've had the opportunity to talk with on Veterans Radio. I mean, we've been doing this now for 19 years, and we had our own local. Medal of Honor recipient who recently his um, distinguished service cross anyway it was he was upgraded finally and the the proof that they had to come up with in order to get this upgraded was really important so let's go back to uh, February of 1945 uh, Woody is on Iwo Jima he is a flamethrower and his task this particular day is to go take out this pillbox mm -hmm. and i'll let you take it from there okay well what's interesting about woody williams uh, iwo jima he's, he wasn't even supposed to be on the island you know like i mentioned we, we thought we were going to be able to take over the island in like five days so we only landed the fourth and the fifth marine corps divisions there and we got so bloodied that within 24 hours the commanders of that uh, time said oh my god we got to put more guys uh, General Schmidt, who was in charge of the uh, 3rd Amphibious Corps, said, man, get the 3rd Marine Corps Division on there. So, you know, we landed on the 19th. They tried to get the 3rd on the 20th. It didn't work, but eventually they did get, you know, elements of the 3rd the on the 21st, and Woody was a part of that. Uh, two days into the engagement on the 23rd of February, his uh, company, Charlie Company, the 1st Battalion, uh, 20, uh, 21st Marines, they hit a very strong line of Japanese, and they're getting slaughtered. And his platoon, uh, commanded by 1st Platoon of Charlie Company, commanded by Howard Chambers, had been reduced from like 48 men down to like 19. And he was tasked with punching through a really tough area uh, of this Japanese line. And this lieutenant, platoon leader in one day with 19 guys actually took out 32 pillboxes and probably killed a few hundred Japanese. Well, part of the action that day was having Woody put on his portable, you know, flamethrower and engage some of these uh, pillboxes. And before I describe what Woody did, I think people need to understand how important the flamethrower was to, to, to battle and what, and what it was. So the flamethrower was like two huge scuba tanks on your back that had four and a half gallons of uh, half aviation of fuel and diesel. It was the, that was the mixture. 
And then there was a center tank that was compressed nitrogen. And then it was attached to a wand. In the front of the wand, you had a trigger with matches that you would light, six, six matches in there in a, in a cylinder that was protected from the elements. And then you had a back trigger that unleashed the compressed nitrogen. And it would push out the flame or the fuel, hit that flame, and then, you know, it burst into, you know, fire. And it would go out about 20 yards in front of you. And the width of it was about 20 yards. It was 3,500 degree heat. If it hit a body, within a few seconds, all the moisture was sucked out of it. And that body was on fire. And if you pushed it into confined spaces, which is what it was used for on Iwo Jima and the tunnels and the pillboxes and the bunkers, it would suck out all the oxygen. So it would also suffocate people. One third of all Japanese on Iwo Jima and Okinawa, for that matter, were burned alive or suffocated by these, uh, these weapons. You had two of them. You had the portable, the one that was carried on by individual Marines and, and Army grunts. And then you had the flamethrower tank called the Satan that would bring in 450 gallons of fuel and could spray it 100 yards Ooh. football field and hit positions. And that was really the only way we could kill the Japanese because here again, they were not on the island. They were in the island. So now getting back, and it was 100 pounds of gear, you know, and Woody's five foot five, 160-pound guy. It's a lot of equipment to be carrying in. And your battle signature is pretty dramatic because you have diesel fuel, so you have a black cloud hanging over you when you engage the weapon and engage the enemy. And so the Japanese would know where you were. So a lot of flamethrower operators died uh, doing their, their brave deeds. But without the flamethrower uh, battle in the Pacific, especially at uh, Iwo Jima and Okinawa, would have been much more treacherous and longer. So when Woody's platoon was, you know, bouncing up against uh, this, um, you know, uh, this line of Japanese with a lot of pillboxes, his company commander, Donald Beck, asked Woody, can you help us out here? And Woody said, you know, you do his best. And so it's hard from the affidavits and uh, testimonies that Woody's given later on to really figure out exactly what happened. And, and, and anybody who's been in combat knows how chaotic right. it can be. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, this is not unique to Woody and, and what was going on there. But it looks like out of the 30-plus uh, pillboxes and bunkers that Howard Chambers' 19-man platoon was able to take out, Woody took out two to three of these uh, pillboxes with um, a flamethrower and killed anywhere between maybe eight to 12 guys. And after the war, uh, uh, Donald Beck, uh, the, who survived, because a lot of people don't realize that you have to have an officer put you in for a Medal of Honor. And if your officer didn't survive, which most, you know, company and platoon officers on Iwo Jima did not, uh, then, you know, the, the person would not get written up for, for a medal. So that Woody actually survived his act and that his officer survived and wrote him up is remarkable uh, in many respects. And so Donald Beck, after the war, decided that what he was hearing that what he did, because he thought he did an awful lot more than what was actually proven in the right. affidavits, he decided to write him up for the Medal of Honor, and eventually it made it through the uh, chain of command and eventually you know, got awarded by President Truman. Well, one of the, the political reasons that you, you mentioned in the book, uh, again, we're talking with uh, Brian Mark Rigg. His book is Flamethrower, and we're talking about Medal of Honor recipient 
uh, Woody Williams, is that from a political standpoint, Truman wanted um, enlisted personnel to, you know, be receiving more of these awards because it seemed like all the officers were doing all the work, but we know that that's not necessarily true. And so, uh, and he wanted to have this big ceremony at the end of World War II to let everybody in the country know what these brave, many of them, just boys, uh, did in protecting, you know, the United States. And Woody's kind of fluctuated back and forth between these different commanders because they were trying to find witnesses. I mean, even in the interview that I watched, he talked about that, um, you can correct me on this because I know you can, um, that his team can, there was the flamethrower, and then there there were three or four guys that were designed there to protect the flamethrower, and they got killed. Uh, two of them did. And so there really weren't any other witnesses to the the fact that, you know, that Woody had done all these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, so you, you bring up a very interesting uh, point. You know, how do you collect evidence, and then and, and why, did, why did Woody – uh, ultimately get it. So, uh, you know, what's interesting is you're, you're mentioning about the pressure put on politically of officers that uh, recognize enlisted men. And Helen Matt Smith, the father of amphibious warfare, uh, who was the fleet marine force, you know, commander uh, for a while uh, during this time, uh, he, uh, he actually wrote a memorandum out to all these, uh, uh, you know, divisions and regiments and so on and saying, hey, officers, quit writing each other up for awards and start looking for your enlisted guys and take care of them. Uh, and, you know, it kind of reminds me, my, my brother was a Harrier pilot uh, in the first Gulf War. And he was disgusted how he saw a lot of his commanders writing themselves up for bronze stars. So this has been a problem throughout our history of people, you know, uh, wanting to get medals, uh, but not really warranting, uh, the, you know, the actions were not warranted for these medals. And they were just kind of rubbing each other's backs and saying how great they uh, each other are, uh, were. So this was one reason why probably there was pressure that Beck felt to get more enlisted guys uh, recognized. And he was very good about writing up his men. He did it for Guam and he did it for Iwo Jima. So probably without this pressure, he would have still done that. But there was a lot of push throughout the chain of command to stop uh, uh, recognizing officers all the time and get the enlisted guys some recognition. So that was one uh, uh, reason why uh, there was maybe some focus on, on Woody that um, would not otherwise have been there because his medal got stopped at some of the highest levels in his chain of command. So what happened was to kind of show the controversy with Woody and, and how his medal actually got, uh, got awarded is something I wasn't expecting to find. And, and a lot of the other Medal of Honor recipients that I studied at Iwo Jima is very clear cut of what they did. They had very good evidence and uh, I'm basically the expert on how medals got awarded during World War II uh, by looking at these case studies. I did uh, almost 20 case studies out of the 27 Medal of Honor recipients from Iwo Jima. So Woody's uh, company commander decides uh, to write Woody up for an award, does a sample citation, and then does an endorsement letter. And he basically writes up what he's been hearing mm-hmm. Woody did. He didn't actually talk to any witnesses. Once his higher command said, this sounds like a medal of honor, 
they told him, go get affidavits. He actually did the scientific method in reverse. So then he went and collected a lot of affidavits, and they don't match up with what he writes. But he still put the package together, threw it up the chain of command. It got passed through Colonel Withers, you know, uh, at the regimental level. It went up to the division, uh, General uh, Graves uh, Erskine, passed him and his board, went up to uh, General Schmidt of the 3rd Amphibious Corps and his board, got passed there. Everything's looking really good. Then it gets up to the Fleet Marine Force commander, who was then Roy Geiger, Lieutenant General uh, Roy S. Geiger. And he and his board look at the evidence that was collected versus what's written up in the endorsement, uh, uh, the first endorsement that Beck put together and the sample citation for the Medal of Honor. And he's like, this doesn't match up. It's like half, if not one third of what is written in the endorsement letter is actually proven by the affidavits. And during this time, so he stopped it. And he actually conferred with Admiral Nimitz and his board, and they agreed, do not pass this forward. He even talked to Commandant of the Marine Corps, Vandergriff, and he agreed, and he did not give any endorsement. So they found out during this time that Woody's platoon leader, Howard Chambers, was still alive. And he hadn't given any affidavit, but he led the action that day that Woody was a part of. Uh, so he witnessed everything. He commanded it. So they're like, hey, We'll give all the evidence to him. He'll re review it, and then he'll tell us what's correct and what's not, and if he'll give an endorsement to Woody. Well, he refused to do so. And General Geiger got very upset with this and wrote him again. And basically between the lines, you can read in the letter, he's basically saying, hey, I'm a three-star general. You are a platoon leader. You're a lieutenant, first lieutenant. You answer my letter. Right. Um, and he refused to do it. And so this medal wasn't going to go anywhere. Well, during this time, Secretary of the Navy Forrestal is getting pressure from President Truman to get a lot of a live Medal of Honor recipients to a Rose Garden ceremony in October of 1945. The war had basically come to an end, and uh, President Truman wanted to have a lot of these wonderful ceremonies, not giving medals to weeping widows and crying mothers of dead guys who were getting it posthumously. He wanted a live, good-looking, strapping, strong young men uh, to give these medals to. And as many people know, when a president gives a Medal of Honor to somebody, awards it, it's uh, bipartisan, it's apolitical, and there's a lot of press there, and it's a great moment in a president's life. And so there were three outstanding cases at this time when President Truman was pushing Secretary of State Forrestal, I mean, Secretary of the Navy Forrestal, to get uh, a live Medal of Honor recipients. And one of them was Woody uh, Williams. Well, when he discussed this with General Geiger, General Geiger says, don't do it. The evidence is not there. Well, eventually, under the political pressure, Secretary of the Navy Forrestal pulls it away from Admiral Nimitz and General Geiger and Commandant of the, Van, uh, uh, the Marine Corps, Vandegrift, and pushes it through. And it's the only Medal of Honor that a Marine received that I've seen that didn't get the endorsement of the Fleet Marine Force Commander, Admiral Nimitz, and the Commandant of the Marine Corps. Uh, it was very controversial. When uh, Commandant of the uh, 31st Commandant of the Marine Corps, uh, uh, Charles Krulak, looked over all this evidence, because I was very disturbed by it, and I said, hey, i, I got to be careful with this. He said he'd never seen a stranger Medal of Honor in his life. 
so that's how Woody, you know, became famous. It's really because of political pressure that pulled, you know, pulled his package uh, away from actually kind of being in a Bermuda Triangle. You know, Woody would have probably gotten an award, uh, most likely a Silver Star, maybe a Navy Cross for, for what was actually able to be proven. But because of the political pressure, he was one of the 82, like I said, out of almost 700,000 Marines to get the Medal of Honor. And he, um, you know, once Truman signed off on it, it becomes official. And then, you know, uh, history has been written since, you know, uh, and he's a military legend. And as we know, just uh, a few weeks ago, he was laying an honor in the rotunda of the Capitol, which really hadn't, it hasn't happened for any enlisted person from World War II. And it was representative of all World War II veterans to honor them and their sacrifice and so on. And so without this political pull and him getting his medal, he would have never had him, you know, laying in honor uh, in the rotunda, although his actions had already been done, you know, by that time. I think what's, what's interesting, we had talked about this before, is that, you know, Woody um, appeared to be, you know, appeared to be a very honorable man. And he took this medal of honor like so many of the other recipients that that you know, you've talked to and that i've talked to and have used it for good you know it's never about them it's always about the guys that didn't come back uh this i wear this to honor my you know my fellow soldiers and marines or whatever it is you know and he had set up foundations and he worked a lot with a whole bunch of different organizations but over the years his story has had changed and it wasn't just caused by your book that you know with your research but the witnesses, as you pointed out, weren't there. So it's sort of like Woody wrote his own commendation with, you know, that he took out seven pillboxes and X number of, of Japanese. And it turns out that, you know, obviously, I mean, he did something very courageous. There's there's no doubt. I mean, I can't imagine crawling up with, you know, a, a gas truck on your back and, you know, shooting flames into an open, uh, you know, pillbox where people are trying to kill you on a regular basis. But his, it it started to unravel. You know, and it's not that we don't know Marines or, or any military person who has kind of taken whatever their story is and then, you know, added a little embellishment to it uh, to make it more interesting. But you have to be careful because sooner or later, somebody who might have been there is going to say, no, 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 no. That's not exactly the way the story went. And as you found out, he did an interview about 10 years after the World War II that kind of started everything unraveling. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, Marines are, are notorious for sea tales, and I'm sure Army grunts, you know, that your community, the same thing. And then how do you deal with memory? And when you embellish something, start telling a story, you may know it's a story, but you, you get such a good response from people that you keep it now part of your narrative. So, you know, what, what, what I found is, you know, one of the violations of the statutes of the Medal of Honor is that you're not able to put yourself in for it, obviously. You're not able to do any self-reporting. And um, what seems to be going on at this time after Woody survived the incredible acts on Iwo Jima, like you mentioned, I mean, he... He was a, uh, a war hero, you know, and he was a very effective uh, warrior under incredible uh, conditions. And I can't imagine, 
the fear of going into battle uh, and taking out one, two, or you know, three pillboxes with multiple flame, you know, having to go back and get several other flamethrower uh, filled flamethrowers to go back into battle after knowing what you came out of and then going back in. I mean, yeah, very brave uh, person that, that Woody was. You know, what's interesting is when you study his life, because he's been giving interviews ever since Truman tied that medal around his neck. So when you look at his interviews from 45 to 66, and he did give a, an interview in 56 that you're, you're mentioning, and then he gives another really big interview in 66 with a different periodicals. Man's Magazine was the one in 66. He has perfect memory of what, what he did. Very elaborate details. Uh, after that, if you look at uh, more recent interviews that he's giving, he, he says he's forgotten everything. There's not very much that he can remember. A lot of it he thinks is PTSD and so on. Now, I'm not a psychologist, but... You would think that if he was traumatized like that, uh, it would have been with him right after the war, too, and he wouldn't have had much of a, a memory. But he had perfect memory until 66. And I document this uh, mm -hmm. in, in, in the book very thoroughly. And when he wrote this or had this uh, big article written about him in 1966, a couple of his comrades were very upset. Schlager was one of them, and another one was uh, Rybakiewicz. And they read it, and they didn't agree with what he, what he said, and, and both of them felt like he had embellished a lot of uh, what he had actually done. And what seems to have happened is, you know, maybe what he did take out, you know, the original endorsement letter said that he took out seven pillboxes, and in one pillbox there was, you know, at least 20 guys that he killed, leaving you to believe, well, man, if he took out seven pillboxes and one had 20, then maybe, you know, he killed 50, 60, 70, 100, you know, Japanese. Right. And, you know, when you go back into the history, the only person you find talking about these actual numbers, seven pillboxes, 20 dead guys in one pillbox, the only person you get evidence from is, is Woody. He's giving this to journalists who I actually read the actual article uh, drafts that they were writing up interviewing him personally. You don't have any of the affidavits that were collected by his comrades giving these stats. The only person giving it is Woody. And he gives this story continually with modifications, slight modifications, until 1966. After 1966, suddenly he doesn't give those stories anymore. So this is kind of interesting when you look at memory and how things are preserved, how history is told and so on. I go into this with, with Woody. And he seems, you know, throughout his life to embellish about a lot of things. You know, his mother lost three babies that the courthouse can document. But when he gives talks now versus a long time ago, he says that his mother lost six babies. You know, and, he, and, and so it seems like either he thinks he's gotten more evidence, which I haven't seen, that his mother lost more babies than what the courthouse has documented. Uh, and, and, and he really believes that or for dramatic effect, the numbers just continue to go up as he sees the mother's gasp and horror when he gives his sermons and, and whatnot. He also talks about them all dying in the Spanish flu epidemic. But, you know, when you look at when they died, you know, the three, three, uh, children that I found in the graveyard and documented in the courthouse, they died before 1918 and 1919. 
So, you know, like with a lot of people, when you're dealing with oral history and memory, you can make mistakes with dates and you make mistakes with facts. But it seems like always when I found exaggerations that, that Woody gave, uh, they were always in his favor. They were never the other way around. And that's when you know that there's true lapse of memory or, or struggling with the facts is that when uh, whatever you're saying goes against or goes for you. Almost everything, it always goes for him. Like, for example, he has a story that he rushed down to uh, volunteer immediately when Pearl Harbor happened. And the Marines didn't let him in because he was too short. Well, the evidence that I found with the help of Colonel John Hoffman, who wrote Ches uh, Chesty, about Chesty Puller, a famous Marine Corps historian. He was head of the historical division. What we found is that he wasn't uh, uh, too short to, to be accepted. He said he was 5'6", and that the minimum was 5'8", by the Marine Corps. What we found at the time was 5'5", five, five. and he was actually 5'5", five, five and 1 uh, 1/4". You know, he always kind of ups it up to 5'6", as many guys do. Yeah. But he still was within regs. So had he, had he volunteered at that time, he would have been accepted. What most likely probably happened, what we can find out from the evidence here, especially his draft card, only when his draft card was pulled did he go in the military. So he didn't really go down and try to volunteer or he would have been in the service. He probably just went home, didn't want to go to the military. And then when he was finally drafted, he did go and he served very bravely and he didn't violate any laws, but it kind of goes against the theme of, Hey, I wanted to get in. I was an underdog. Um, they rejected me. And only when they lowered their standards, that I went down immediately and volunteered. No, it seems like, you know, as Colonel Hoffman and I looked at the evidence, he just waited around until he was drafted. Yeah. And that's okay. But when you have another story going along, uh, you know, of, of um, you know, this kind of like this urban legend of how this hero became a hero, that's a much more juicier story. Absolutely. You know, the Marines didn't let me in and I wanted to get in. I kept on knocking at the door and finally, so these are the type of stories that I found all throughout his life. And I think anybody, you know, when you look at them underneath the microscope and they're, they're, they're living their lives, not thinking they're going to be under the microscope, you're going to find a lot of discrepancies. One thing that I found that was very interesting during this course of uh, uncovering the truth is when I interviewed a lot of German soldiers from World War II who didn't have a lot of opportunity to talk about their experiences uh, because their kids didn't want to know about it. They served, you know, Adolf Hitler and they lost. Right. A lot of times when I interviewed them and went back to the archives, I, I didn't find any discrepancies. I didn't find a lot of mistruths. Uh, when I interviewed a lot of these guys from World War II, our boys, Marines, I was finding guys left and right with a lot of problems. Uh, one of the most shocking stories I found is, Woody, for years, had a guy by the name of Lefty Lee endorse him and promote himself as being one of his riflemen to protect him when he was in battle, one that survived. You were mentioning that every flamethrower that went into battle, he had usually two M1 riflemen with him and then a bar man, you know, uh, and a bar was a 7.62, you know, semi-automatic rifle, heavy power, and then you had, you know, the M1 uh, rifle, and so these guys would go into battle and, and, and protect the flamethrower. Well, one guy that was on Guam with us and Iwo Jima in 2015 was Lefty Lee, and he had all these elaborate details about what Woody had done. 
and then he was right there with him fighting and all this other stuff. We'll make a long story short, you know, we were trying to get him a Purple Heart and a Bronze Star for his actions. And when we were getting the evidence in the National Archives to try to support that from the stories that Lefty had been giving and from the endorsement Woody had given about Lefty being there, we actually found that he was removed from the island the very first day he landed for breaking up psychologically, shell shock, psychoneurosis. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, going into his story, which was extremely elaborate and so on, and I found it was totally false. And in some respects, because he had benefited financially by being flown around and taken care of, he was kind of a, a stolen valor case. And when I sat down with him and asked him, I was like, where did you get all this elaborate detail about what Woody did? He said, um, I got it from all the interviews that Woody gave in 1945 you know, to Dick Dashiell yeah. and a couple of the other journalists that were covering Woody's story. And when you find out where did those journalists get most of their data, it was from Woody. And a lot of that data, I can't find any support for. So, you know, this is also kind of a sad story that I find that a lot of Americans, I think, who are, you know, true heroes in many respects, in every sense of the word, but since they've been asked throughout their lives as heroes to tell stories, they tend to give into hyperbolic uh, speech each time they give this story to just give more drama and more effect to their audience as they're feeding off the energy from people. And people want to hear more and more, so they right. yeah. give it, them it, more. It gets better and better. There's so much more information in this book, and I'm sorry that we've run out of time today. We've been talking with Brian Mark Rigg, the author of Flamethrower. I strongly encourage our audience to go out and get this book. You're going to learn more about World War II in the Pacific than you'll ever, ever want to know. And I'm hoping that I can get Brian to come back on the program and continue on because Woody's story doesn't end here. It continues on, along with some other stories. So, um Brian, I want to thank you very much for your time, especially um, you know, technology-wise and getting all connected up today. So I want to thank you for being on Veterans Radio. Hey, thank you so much, Dale, for having me and for your questions and for reading my book. I really appreciate it.